On this episode of the Fear Me Out podcast, I finish out my series on being a highly sensitive person, and I'm going to talk about some of the science behind being an HSP. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. I think it's really interesting that scientists have discovered that being HSP is a biological phenomenon. So I'm going to discuss that in length. Dr. Dana Saperstein and the Fear Me Out podcast is pleased to announce that Janus Community Counseling Services is now the proud sponsor of the Fear Me Out podcast. Janus Community Counseling Services is a nonprofit organization in Santa Barbara, California that is committed to providing professional, affordable counseling. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to the Fear Me Out podcast, please go to www.jccs.org and earmark your donation to the podcast. For more information about making a donation, you can contact Dr. Saperstein directly at 805-452-0006. Now, Dr. Dana Saperstein. I continue my series on being a highly sensitive person. Uh, this is the last episode that I'm going to do. It's on the biology science of being a highly sensitive person. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting that um, there have been a lot of brain scans that have been done on people that have been identified as being highly sensitive. And it turns out that um, different parts of a highly sensitive person's brain light up compared to those of the average person. Some scientists have actually started looking into animals. And it turns out that about 15% of over 100 animal species show the same highly sensitive traits that humans do. I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, some scientists at Cornell actually uh, studied fish, and they noticed that if the fish are in a tank and they put a trap in the tank, that about 85% of the fish don't notice the trap and they swim right into it. But there's about 15% of the fish that kind of hang back and they look at their environment in detail. And uh, it turns out that those fish don't swim into the trap, that none of them got captured like the average fish did. So... Uh, and then they start looking at other different mammals. And it, it just turns out that um, this trait carries over, not just from humans, to many different forms of life. Worthy of noting that it's fish, it's monkeys, it's dogs, all kinds of different animals sort of approach life, some with caution and some jumping right into it. Because there are kind of two strategies that people approach life with. Uh, the first one is is what I would say called doing it right and doing it once. And those are people that, that jump right into situations and, you know, live a life that's um, not very cautious in that regard. And that's the lion's share of people, not necessarily that they're risk takers, but uh, they just kind of move forward and, and, and don't pay as much attention to the environment as somebody who might be highly sensitive. The other way that people uh, sort of approach the world is that they think very carefully before they act. And so... If you look at kindergartners when they show up at school on the first day, most of the kids, not all, but most kind of run in and start playing and, um, you know, notice all the toys and all the fun stuff that they can get involved in. But about 10, maybe 15% of kids, they kind of stop at the front door. Uh, they look around and they check everything out. And they think about what they're seeing. They kind of fantasize about what they might enjoy or not. But they don't just run into the room. They're, and oftentimes these kids got labeled as being shy. And they're actually not necessarily shy. They're just cautious. And uh, they want to make sure that they're safe. 
And the way they do that is just by being kind of hypervigilant, looking around and making sure that the environment feels comfortable for them. And again, that's opposed to the kids that just run in and start playing right away and have an easier time sort of, you know, going through the change of being at home to being at school. And again, the, the, the sensitive kids often get looked at as being like introverts primarily, and as opposed to the kids that run in and, and uh, want to play right away as being extroverts. Well, it turns out that there is a, a disparity between introversion and extroversion. About 70% of HS people actually are introverted, but there are about 30% of uh, people that are highly sensitive, but they're actually quite extroverted. They just take their time in you know, getting to that extroverted part of their personality. It's interesting because being an HSP increases the depth of information processing that highly sensitive people go through. So it's, it's biologically programmed into a highly sensitive person's brain to kind of scan the environment and look at everything just sort of automatically and carefully. People that are sensitive describe that they can read the room really easily. They, it's really easy to kind of feel what's happening around you, to kind of notice who's okay, who's not okay. I think that happens in social situations, but I also think it happens in family situations that a highly sensitive person is sort of born to take measure of the amount of pain and discomfort that family members have around them because they want to make sure that they feel safe. And in order to be, feel safe, a lot of highly sensitive kids then feel like they have to manage the discomfort in the people around them. I know that in my own situation, even before I was born, I started managing my mom's pain and my dad's in a certain way because um, the environment did not feel safe. And I know throughout my life, it seemed really important to me that I make sure that my mom was okay all the time because she was a very anxious woman and that anxiety caused her to f sort of be disconnected from uh, me, probably my siblings also. And so a lot of the time I spent as a kid trying to get her attention and trying to sort of take care of her and make sure she was okay because it was too uncomfortable for me to live with her discomfort. And that's a really strong trait, biological trait that highly sensitive kids have. The problem with being hypervigilant is that as a highly sensitive person, you can become easily overstimulated. So I tell people all the time if they are willing to accept the notion that they're highly sensitive, they have to be careful about how much stimulation they expose themselves to. Because it's really easy to feel like your nervous system is getting overloaded just by the stimulation around you. So for me, I don't like being in crowded places. I don't like being around noise, lots of people. Some restaurants are extremely uncomfortable for me. Uh, I'm not a guy who likes to go to parties or, or just be around a lot of noise and stimulation because I feel like it, it feels like an assault in a way. And it doesn't mean that what's happening around me is bad or wrong. It's just that my body reacts to it really strongly. Uh, sometimes after I finish my, my after work, go downstairs at lunchtime and my grandkids are there and I love my grandkids and I can't wait to see them. But sometimes when I walk in the door, the noise is so intense that I feel like, whoa, it's like walking into a hurricane. And I feel like I, I physically sometimes need to back up and uh, just kind of take a moment to handle that intense stimulation that comes my way. And again, they're not the problem. Um, you know, it's normal to be a kid who's wild and having a great time. It's actually my nervous system that reacts really strongly to that intensity. 
And so the natural thing is to want to kind of pull away from uh, that sensitivity and that stimulation. Now, I will say that there are other kinds of stimulation that I really love. So maybe I'm not a, a normal HSP person because I like going really fast. And um, I, I like the feeling of speed. I love surfing. And, and the faster you go on a surfboard, the more fun it was for me. So maybe if I felt like I was under in control of the situation, that kind of stimulation actually seemed fun to me and uh, very enjoyable. Being highly emotional is a another biological trait that is really much programmed into your nervous system. If you're highly sensitive, you feel your feelings way more strongly than the average person. And there are lots of implications of that because easily made fun of. of so many highly sensitive people I know as children who are constantly being told they make a big deal about things and that, you know, why do you cry so easily and why are you, why are you so reactive? Why do you make such a big deal about something that doesn't seem important, but for the sensitive person, it feels really, really important. And uh, it doesn't make sense to the average person that you would be so reactive emotionally to what's happening around you because um, it doesn't affect the average person in the same way it would a highly sensitive person. So being highly sensitive um, is not an always easy way to live. I'm someone who can feel what's happening around me very acutely and I think it's really important, a, a way of me measuring the environment around me. But I know that it sometimes feels really uncomfortable in situations that everybody else seems quite comfortable in because I'm feeling the pain that the people in the room carry and everybody else just seems to be enjoying themselves and having a good time. So uh, part of what I had to learn as a highly sensitive kid and a highly sensitive person was not to absorb the pain of other people. And this is a really, really important topic that I want to talk about because the most natural thing for a highly sensitive person, especially as a child, is to be a pain monitor, to be aware of all the pain around you, and then to literally start to absorb it like a sponge in order to help the people around you. Um, sadly, this never works. Uh, it feels really important to do, but no matter how much you take in as a kid, to try to make sure that the people around you are okay so that you can be okay. You're just a kid, so it's never enough to provide you with a sense of safety and well-being. And that starts to feel, by the time you're about 10 years old, like you failed something really important in your life. And so I meet a lot of people that kind of describe that in after the, about the first decade of life, that they just started to feel really badly about themselves. And... Um, and, f and feel like they were kind of a failure because the truth is a lot of kids do fail in this way. They fail to, you know, like for me, my mom's anxiety level didn't go down at all as a result of my uh, trying to take care of her. And my dad's kind of desperation about money didn't change as a result of me trying to take care of him. And I started to feel like I, I wasn't good enough to love. And I think that happens for a lot of highly sensitive people. It feels like a personal failure, even though it's not something that uh, anybody kind of mentions on a conscious level. It's just sort of a feeling that starts to uh, overtake you by the time you're about 10, 11 years old. And it is a true failure. The, the sad part is that it's a failure that um, couldn't be avoided because no kid can ever absorb enough pain to make sure that the people around them in this world are okay.
but it's an instinct I think that um, comes out of feeling things that maybe the average people don't feel. Another thing that happens if you're really highly sensitive is that you have a sensitivity to subtle stimuli that um, can be really overwhelming that other people are may around you may not notice. Smells, sounds, bright lights, uh, all of those kinds of uh, stimuli are easily handled by someone of average sensitivity because it doesn't cause their nervous system to be overactivated. But for a highly sensitive person, all of those things can sometimes feel like an assault. When I had good hearing, I remember at times um, going into a restaurant or an environment and sitting down at a, like a table in a restaurant, and my family would look at me like, what's wrong with you? And I would think or say to, my, to them, can't you hear that fan in the kitchen? And they would look at me like, well, maybe a little, but you know, why are you making a big deal about it? It's just a fan in the kitchen. But to me, it felt like nails on a chalkboard. I was watching a movie with my wife last night, actually, and the music in the movie was incredibly irritating to me. And I was looking at my wife thinking, does she, does she notice how awful this music is? And she didn't. It wasn't, you know, I, I'm not sure that it would have been her favorite music to hear in a movie, but I had to actually get up and leave and stop watching the movie because uh, anytime there was a musical interlude in the movie, it was so grating of my nerves that I just thought, I can't watch this. This is horrible. It actually ruined the movie for me because the, the, the music was so grating on me. And, uh, you know, that's pretty annoying because, you know, I think the movie would have been okay otherwise, but I just couldn't handle it. It was awful. Um, it's something that I think you have to come to terms with as a highly sensitive person that, that, you can either think there's something wrong with you because you can't, like me, watch a movie and, and not be affected by things that are uncomfortable or recognize that you don't really have a choice because we don't have control over how our nervous system reacts. We can influence it if we want to drink too much or you know use drugs or whatever to uh, make things less intense, but I'm not sure that that's the healthiest way to go through life. And I do know lots of highly sensitive people that don't understand that their sensitivity is creating a divide between them and the people around them. So the, the natural thing is to try to be like the people around you. So I've known, as an example, some young men and women who've joined uh, fraternities or sororities when they go off to college, thinking that that would be the best and easiest place to make friends. But I can't tell you how often it happens that um, a, a sensitive person will make a friend, but at a huge cost, because those environments have a tendency to be really intense. There's lots of partying and having, you know, a good time. I don't know how many problems with people having a good time, but a lot of times there's tons of alcohol and all kinds of other ways that people, you know, enhance their, their experience. And if you're a highly sensitive person and you're in that kind of an environment, it's going to be really difficult to be comfortable. And I think actually sometimes the people around you notice your discomfort and they unconsciously kind of shy away from you because they can tell that there's something going on that they don't really understand about, about you, and, and it makes them uncomfortable that you're uncomfortable. So I think it's important if you're a highly sensitive person to recognize that uh, it's not a good idea to, to try and make yourself less sensitive as a solution to uh, loneliness or a need to, con to find a connection. Another thing that's really important to consider as a biological trait is that we scan most of our environment through our eyes. It's the primary sense that we go through life, you know, as a visual person. We take most of everything in through our eyes. 
through our ears also, through smells and through, you know, touch and all that. But our visual uh, scanning ability is really the main way that we go through the world. If you're a highly sensitive person, your scanning, visual scanning ability is hugely heightened. And so uh, it, that makes for noticing things that maybe most people around you wouldn't really notice readily. Um, and it can also make you feel like you're kind of weird because you're noticing all this stuff and everybody around you doesn't notice whatever it is that you're paying attention to. And it may seem to the people around you that, you know, why are you being so vigilant? Why are you being so uncomfortable in what's happening around you? But if you understand that 80% of the stimulation that comes into your life comes through your eyes, then reading the room comes quite easily if you're a highly sensitive person. And so you're going to be very strongly affected by emotional stimuli, how people around you are feeling. You can sort of, if you want to, kind of get a read on what kind of trauma a person might be carrying, whether they're in pain or whether they feel good. It, it, it can create a division between being a sensitive person and the people around you. Because I would say that, and this is not necessarily a criticism, but I think that most people would prefer to keep their secrets a secret. That's why we keep secrets, right? Because generally speaking, if you have things that you keep a secret about yourself, they're shameful things. As children, no matter what happens to us, especially if it's negative, we blame ourselves for whatever trauma or neglect that we might suffer. And if you've had or, you know, some uncomfortable things happen to you. It doesn't have to be abuse. You're going to end up carrying a bit of shame about who you are. And if somebody comes into your world and they can feel how much shame that you carry, that's very uncomfortable for the person carrying the shame if they don't want that shame to be revealed. There's a, a phenomenon that I've noticed is that when I'm around people that I've just met, I can tell if I want to pretty much, you know, what's going on inside that person. I can read them. I don't do that as a habit because it's a social situation, but I think that it makes people uncomfortable when I start to sort of tune into uh, their emotional temperature. Um, I will tell you, again, I've talked about this on the podcast before, that um, one of the most uncomfortable things I can do in a social situation uh, is to tell people what I do for a living. I would say that being a psychologist, for some people, is interesting but I would say for a lot of people, as soon as I tell people what I do, these get extremely uncomfortable. People make comments that are not always complimentary. <laughs> they, they, you know, they assume I'm reading their minds somehow or that I'm, you know, diagnosing them in some way. I've had the same mother-in-law for, I don't know, 45 years. And I would say that 90% of the time that um, I am in her presence, She's extremely uncomfortable around me, and I can't even tell you how many times she has said to me, I know you're psychoanalyzing me. Not that she even knows what psychoanalysis is, but she's just assuming, uh, because of the way she feels about herself, that I'm judging her in some way. And that happens a lot for me um, in, the context of, <clears throat> in the context of meeting people and being with people. I talk about a, a recent situation that I had. I had to have some uh, surgery, and I'm on the table getting ready to be put under anesthesia, and, you know, everybody in the operating room, super nice. They're all friendly, the anesthesiologists, the nurses, the, you know, hospital tech. Um, and the nurse standing next to me uh, just spontaneously says to me, you know, what do you do for a living? And I think to myself, oh, you know, I need these people to stay in the room. So I can't tell them what I do for a living. And so I started joking with the nurse, and I said, I really can't tell you. It's private. 
And, she, and you know, I th- her first thought, because uh, she said to me, are you like in the Secret Service or something? And I said, no, no. And then she asked me if I was a proctologist, which uh, I said no. And she said, well, what could you possibly do that would make me uncomfortable? And I said, well, usually when I tell people what I do, they, a lot of them can't get away from me fast enough. The room usually goes silent and people kind of find a way to leave quickly. So I, I didn't want these people to leave quickly because I needed them in order to make sure I was okay having my surgery. So I said to the woman, I'm a psychologist. I swear to you that the operating room went silent. Everybody just stopped talking, and including the nurse I was standing with. And then we both started laughing. And I said, see, this is what happens, right? You're under the assumption that I, that I can read what's going on inside of you. And that, that makes you uncomfortable. And everybody else started in the operating room started laughing. And then very quickly, they put me under anesthesia. And that was the end of their uh, concern that I might be able to um, divine their secrets in some way. And I can't tell you how often that has happened throughout my life, even before I became a therapist. People were either drawn to me and would tell me their life story, or they didn't want to be near me because they felt really uncomfortable around me. And I noticed that very early on, and I assumed initially that it was, you know, because I was not a likable person. But then when I come, came to understand that uh, I was a really sensitive person and that's kind of a threat, it really changed the way that I, I looked at myself and went through the world. It's really important, again, to recognize that uh, learning how not to take people's pain into your body is one of the key necessities of being a highly sensitive person. I want to talk about this for a few moments because people ask me all the time, how do you do your job and not, how do you handle being around people in pain all the time? Because I welcome people into my life that have had some of the worst things that you would never want to imagine could happen to a child. And I spend a lot of time with people crying intensely and, and, you know, describing horrific things and, you know, facing the pain of those, of, you know, that kind of trauma. And there's a natural assumption that those things are going to affect me and really hurt me. I had heart surgery 12 years ago. And after I had heart surgery, a bunch of people, including some of my clients, said to me, well, the reason that your heart is messed up is because of what you do for a living, that the other people's pain is breaking your heart. And first of all, I thought that was a bit presumptuous, that the people would just assume that. Now, I know that everybody's concern for me was well-intended, but I don't think that most people understand that I don't take other people's pain into my body. That I learned a long time ago that my job is to help you manage your own pain and not to f- do what I did as a child, which is to be like a sponge and absorb your pain into my body. Because as a therapist, if I do that, I am sending you the message that you're actually not capable of managing your own pain and uh, fear. So the way that I do that is I look at it as a spiritual issue. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to look at it this way. But for me, if I feel like I have a really strong connection with my version of God, then in my mind, the pain belongs in that venue, that God is the force, you want to call it your higher self, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call that, that's the, the vehicle of helping people release the pain from their bodies. So part of what I do when I'm doing hypnotherapy, as an example, is to help people realize that, number one, the pain is there, and I help people connect with that pain, and then I show them how to release it from their body. Some people that have a spiritual sort of active connection, we can talk about it out loud, 
Other times people don't, and it's not necessary that you have to have that in order to release the pain. But if you're willing to recognize that it's not necessary as a highly sensitive person to take other people's pain into your body, then there has to be some sort of way to manage that pain and just let it be what it is. And in my mind, initially what I did was just sort of picture white light around my body. I know that sounds kind of hokey or silly, but in my mind that light was a representation of my version of God and that in my mind God is uh, the most powerful sort of force in the universe and that evil or pain or whatever can't come past it. So if I have it as something that surrounds me all the time, then the only thing that comes into my body from other people is either, you know, neutral or pleasurable. And it's not that I'm not sensitive to people if they get angry with me or if I have issues that I need to resolve with someone. But having that sort of buffer, it's like, um, I don't know if a lot of people in this podcast are familiar with, uh, with Star Trek, but in the past when they wanted to protect their ship, they would put up their photon shields. And I think that if you can create a photon shield in your imagination of some kind, uh, one person I know puts clouds around them. Another young woman actually that I met surrounded herself with cotton candy. And I know these things sound really silly, but if you take it seriously, that pain is not for you to absorb, then there has to be something that kind of is always there so that you don't have to think about it. It's just an automatic protection. It's like when you put your clothes on in the morning, you don't think about your clothes all day long as a way of keeping you warm, unless the temperature changes and you either need to take off some of your clothes or put on more. And it's the same thing with emotional pain, right? Pretty much you can just keep that shield up. And if the pain dissipates, you know, you don't have to do anything. And if it increases, just to remind yourself that it's not your responsibility to manage other people's pain. Super important. Otherwise, I mean, I'll tell you that in the mail, I get about once a week, I get a therapist burnout uh, seminar for for therapists who go in order to deal with being burnt out. And I think that that happens because some amount of therapists are really sensitive by nature, and either they know it or they don't know it, but they think that it's their job to absorb the pain, and of course that's going to cause you to feel burnt out very quickly. Just like when people assume that um, my heart was broken because of the pain that I encounter and the people who come to see me. But that's not the case because I don't take that pain into my body. I can be compassionate and I can be present. And yeah, I'm not going to say that sometimes I don't feel sad when somebody describes a life of horrible sexual abuse or whatever it might be. But that's my sadness about caring for them as opposed to me taking their pain into my body. So again, I know I'm overstating this over and over again, but uh, people ask me all the time, well, what are you supposed to do? Because I've spent my life taking people's pain on. And, and usually what I do is just avoid people. And I don't think that that's a necessary solution, that you can, you can be around as many people as you want to and not take any of it into your body. Once you know that it doesn't belong to you and that just because you learned how to do it as a kid doesn't mean it's necessary to keep doing it as an adult. Because what saved your life as a kid actually becomes very self-destructive as an adult because it's not necessary anymore. And it, and it hurts you. Then we have the topic of stress. Now, stress is going to affect a highly sensitive person way, way more than it would the average person because of the effect that it has on your nervous system. 
So I try to encourage people to consider the lifestyle that they lead if they have come to terms with the idea that they're a highly sensitive person. Because it doesn't really matter if it's positive or negative stress. Good things can be as overwhelming as bad things in terms of how your nervous system reacts to them. So super important if you're highly sensitive to make sure you get proper rest, to make sure that you eat properly, to make sure that you exercise, to make sure that uh, you take care of yourself in every way possible. And it is a bit of a pain because it means you got to treat yourself in a different way than you would otherwise. You know, for most people, they can kind of get away with not sleeping well or not eating well or whatever it might be. Not that, you know, those habits don't take their toll. But for a highly sensitive person, it's going to be exponentially more damaging to not take care of yourself. So sometimes I use the metaphor of uh, a vehicle. You know, I have a I have a Honda. I can go to the gas station. I can put, you know, regular gas in my Honda, and it works just fine. But if I had a Ferrari and I did that, uh, the car, first of all, you would it wouldn't be drivable because it's a high-performance vehicle, and it's a really high-maintenance vehicle. And again, super fun to drive in, but it doesn't come at a, without a huge cost, which is you got to be maintaining that vehicle in a way different way than I maintain my vehicle. And that's the difference between being of normal sensitivity and being a highly sensitive person. You are, by definition, a very, very, a person who needs lots of maintenance. You are a high-maintenance person. Now, that has a negative connotation to it, but that's only because highly sensitive people have often been shamed about how much attention to health and well-being that they need in order to feel a sense of well-being. Because it's not necessary for most. So again, if you want to work, work and live and be at your best, you have to be willing to shift away from taking yourself for granted to being really careful about how you eat, how you sleep, how much substances you use, whether you exercise or not. So all the different ways of being not necessarily careful, but certainly mindful of how you live in the world. Otherwise, you're going to suffer way more than someone who doesn't have to be as careful. The next thing that's really important is that Trauma activates the brain in a similar way that the trait of sensory processing affects a person of of high sensitivity. So if you're a really highly sensitive person, trauma is very challenging because it affects the part of your brain that gets activated just purely out of high sensitivity. So trauma has a much more damaging effect on a highly sensitive person than it would um, not that trauma doesn't affect people of average sensitivity, but it's it's much more damaging to someone who's highly sensitive by nature, which is really kind of sad if you think about it, because if you're a highly sensitive person as a kid, you're going to be the one that dives right into trying to save your family from from their pain, and that's going to subject you to more trauma, actually, than the people around you, because you feel it and you want to do something about it because it makes you feel unsafe. And yet the effect that the trauma has on you is more damaging than it would be otherwise. So part of coming to terms with being highly sensitive is accepting and understanding that sometimes you could be suffering from post-traumatic stress for reasons that a person that experienced the same things wouldn't sort of have the same traumatic stress reaction. So it can make you feel like you're kind of weird that these things affected you so strongly and they don't seem to affect other people 
in quite that way. Now, there is a phenomenon that's been very well documented about being highly sensitive, and that is that a highly sensitive person is much, much more likely to be exploited by somebody with a narcissistic or borderline personality disorder. And that's kind of an interesting thing to think about because I can't tell you how many people I have met who have been in relationships with somebody with a a narcissistic personality disorder and they just have the worst experience and they suffer endless humiliation and uh, difficulty. And it's almost like that it's like kryptonite for Superman, somebody with a personality disorder. But if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because if you have a narcissistic personality disorder, for example, your need for admiration and power is really, really strong. And that need is accompanied by an ability to read people really, really well. So if you're going through the world with a strong need for uh, admiration and power, the most natural person that you can exploit is a highly sensitive person because their compassion and their desire to help you feel better about yourself is easily exploited. So a lot of times there's a marriage or a relationship between a a narcissist and an HSP person because the HSP person is so hypervigilant about wanting to make sure that the narcissist is okay and is always focusing on making sure that that person is not suffering in some way or feels what they need to feel and so on and so forth. And those relationships can be quite damaging to the highly sensitive person because your sympathy and your empathy can be played upon really easily by a perpetrator because people that have personality disorders are by definition perpetrators. And so a lot of times highly sensitive people get victimized in that environment. And it's very difficult to extricate yourself from that kind of a relationship because uh, if the narcissist starts to feel that you're being disloyal to them, then usually they do everything they can to manipulate you into submission and try to make you feel really bad about yourself for not wanting to support them and take care of them in the way that they feel like they deserve. So I've watched a lot of people struggle for many, many months, sometimes longer, once they understand the nature of the person that they're with, getting away from that person, because as a highly sensitive person, you start to feel really guilty that you're no longer willing to to support a broken person, which is somebody with a personality disorder. Now, in the name of borderline personality disorder, part of the definition is that the person with the disorder uh, vacillates between adoration, they adore their partner, but if their partner does anything to threaten their sense of security, then they flip into wanting to hurt their partner. And so it can be really confusing that in one moment you're being loved, and then the next moment you're being uh, really extremely punished and hurt. And that keeps a highly sensitive person trapped for a long period of time sometimes because of the confusion and the feelings of loyalty. Because, again, as a highly sensitive person, you're more likely to be loyal to somebody in a relationship. Not that people that are of average sensitivity aren't loyal, but if your job is to be the pain manager, then your loyalty gets exploited and uh, used in that. Getting back to brain scans, there there are neurons in our brain that are called mirror neurons. And they are very, very active in an HSP person. And this explains why highly sensitive people are overwhelmed by other people's feelings. Because these mirror neurons allow us to connect with other people's feelings. 
it's the part of our brain that is responsible for us connecting with other people, especially on an emotional level. And so if you're a highly sensitive person, uh, your mirror neurons are way, way, way more activated than the average person. And I think it's important, again, to understand that this is a biological phenomenon. This is something that you're born with. And so you can't help these characteristics, right? If, if you are always sort of wired to pay attention to other people's feelings and to be connected to the people around you on an emotional level, and those people are suffering in some way or not okay, then it's, it's really almost impossible not to feel like it's your responsibility to make sure that person is okay. And the weird thing is that, as, as I've said before, when I was younger, people, used to, uh, people that were in need of some kind of psychological support would gravitate toward me if I was on a bus or a plane or whatever, and they'd start telling me their life story. And I think that sometimes people could sort of feel that I was able to connect with their emotions on a deeper level than most of the people around them. And so if they had need of support or comfort, they would turn to me. And I remember oftentimes thinking to myself, why are you telling me this? This is private information. What am I supposed to do about the fact that this is happening to you? Um, and that was before I became a therapist and actually started to do it as a, a living. Um, I had an experience as an early therapist when I had a group of people come to my house for a barbecue. And there were a few couples I didn't know. And uh, there was a, a man and woman that were probably in their 40s. I can't remember how old I was at the time. But I was in my, on my, backyard, in my backyard cooking the food. And this woman came outside who I didn't really know. I'd met her maybe superficially. And she sat down at my uh, patio table and was watching me cook. And then I sat down for a moment, you know, just letting the food settle. And she said to me, can I tell you something? And my first thought was, oh, uh oh, here we go, because this has happened to me so many times. And um, I just thought, okay, I, you know, we don't know each other, but if you want to tell me something, go ahead. Well, I'm not making light of the situation, actually, even though I say it in a semi-humorous way. She actually started crying, sobbing intensely. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, brother, what's going on here? And just out of the blue, she looked at me and she said, uh, when I was growing up, my father used to molest me all the time. And I have never told anybody this in my entire life. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you telling me? I'm not your therapist. I'm cooking dinner, right? <laughs> it was just so shocking that she would just reveal this to me out of the blue. And then sadly, her husband came outside. He noticed her sitting at the table. And then when he noticed that she was crying, he looked at me like, you know, what the heck did you do to my wife? Why is she crying? And I said, oh, look, you guys have to have a few minutes alone uh, because she actually told me before he came outside that she's never told her husband because she was afraid if she told him that he would think that she was really dirty and disgusting and not want to be married to her. So she kept it a secret all of the 20 some odd years they were married. And I said, you know, I'm going to excuse myself while you guys have a conversation. Well, I don't know what happened in their conversation, but it was not a good conversation because both of them started fighting, and then they, they left the gathering before uh, we ate dinner. Now, why this woman decided at that moment that I was the person to uh, open up and tell this to, I think that she could, I just had the feeling that I would be somebody that would be able to handle the information. I just felt really sad for her, especially because she was certain 
that her husband would not be able to handle this. And the sad part is that she was right because they got a divorce about three or four months later. I don't think he was ever able to accept that she kept this a secret. I mean, I'm sure there are other issues that brought their marriage to an end. But I think intuitively she knew that um, he was not the right person to, to talk about this. But it got to a point where she just couldn't keep it a secret any longer. So again, that's another example of when you're a highly sensitive person, your mirror neurons are a really deep connection that you have to the feelings and the, and the emotions of other people. There's another part of your brain that's called the insula. I never heard of these before I started to research for this podcast. And the insula integrates moment-to-moment uh, -moment internal and external states inside of us. It leads to deep insight and awareness. And if you look at the brain scan of a highly sensitive person, this part of the brain gets activated really, really strongly in the face of stimuli. And it also increases the blood flow to your prefrontal cortex if you're a highly sensitive person. And your prefrontal cortex is responsible for higher executive functioning. Um, it makes for more of what we call uh, norepinephrine, which leads to heightened emotional experiences. And so if you have heightened emotional experiences because your brain is releasing more norepinephrine than the average person, then it leads to seeing the world in a really different way than most other people. These are some of the biological aspects that are just beginning to be uh, discovered in doing studies of highly sensitive people. I've met people maybe 13 years old, 12 years old, all the way up to in their late 70s, sometimes a bit older. You've got to be able to make it up my stairs in order to come into my office. And for whatever reason, my life is filled especially on a professional level, with really highly sensitive people. And again, if you're a highly sensitive person, you know how much you've suffered as a result of not understanding that this is what you bring to the table. Because right from the beginning of your life, it creates anxiety, discomfort, a need to take care of other people, um, and, it can, and it also leads to a lot of shaming. I can't tell you how many times growing up that, people not just in my family would look at me like, why do you make such a big deal about things? Why, why are you so emotional? Why, why do things bother you so much? Right. A lot of times, um, and then this can be physical also, not just um, uh, emotional, but you know, people would make fun of me all the time because my diet was so weird and, and I would be so affected by the people around me on an emotional level. And people would look at me like, well, you know, this is not that big of a deal. Why do you care so much? What, you know, why is this so troublesome to you? And my solution to all of this by the time I became a teenager was to start smoking marijuana every day from morning till night because I didn't understand that this is how I was going through the world. I had no idea that, that that difference that I felt was real. I thought it was just because I was a, you know unlovable person and that you know there was something wrong with me because of the horrible things that happened to me. And, and some of the deprivation that I suffered as a kid emotionally. But there was a huge part of it that just had to do with being a really sensitive person and being really different. And, I, and the only choice I had at the time that I felt would work was to start medicating myself. So from the time I was like 13, 14, all the way till I was 18, 
There was not a single day that I wasn't high from the moment I woke up till I went to sleep at night. And this didn't help the high sensitivity. I just was lonely and really isolated. Uh, the marijuana certainly didn't do anything other than sort of help me feel indifferent to the pain that I was suffering. I was really lucky because my parents noticed how much pain I was in when I was about 17 or 18. And that began my life of healing, having therapy and and uh, working on the trauma. And and the, luckily enough, uh, the, ther- the therapist that I spent the most time with, he didn't really understand the concept of high sensitivity uh, sort of consciously, but he knew it from his own experience as a person. And so he was able to help me accept all the weird characteristics that I was ashamed of that related to being a really sensitive person. And that was really helpful to me because it was sort of the first time in my life that, that I felt like somebody could understand me and that he helped me normalize the traits I had no control over. And that made a huge difference in the way that I felt as a person. I was no longer feeling ashamed all the time about how strongly I felt things and, and how difficult it was to go through the world um, like a, you know, just really overly exposed. He helped me understand that I wasn't in charge of making sure that my parents were okay and that, and he actually was the person that convinced me to become a therapist. So it wasn't that he wanted me to avoid being of service and helping people, but he figured that if I could do it in a professional context and learn how not to take people's pain on, but to show them what compassion and understanding looks like, that it would be a really good use of my sensitivity. And he was right, because I have now, you know, been a therapist for, I don't know, 35 years or so, and I love what I do, and I have no intention of stopping doing it. And for whatever reason, my life is filled with really, really sensitive people. They find their way into my world because I feel like it's my part of my job to uh, um, to help my tribe recognize who they are and live a more copacetic life, a life of acceptance, and and eventually, hopefully, for a lot of people to learn how to use their sensitivity as a gift, because it certainly provides for finding novel solutions to problems. Uh, that's one of the key components to being a highly sensitive person is that you're way more creative than the average person and much more likely to find a novel solution to a problem. And all these things are brain wiring. And I, and I think that that's a huge gift, but it does not come at a, at a without a cost, which is um, if you're a highly sensitive person, you're never going to be the life of the party. It's more likely that you're not going to be a really popular person because if you're a super popular person, usually it's because you're an extrovert and that you can not be overly stimulated very easily and that you really actually enjoy that kind of stimulation. It doesn't affect your nervous system. So that's one thing that's hard for people because they assume that, that they're going to end up then being super lonely. And I think that it doesn't guarantee loneliness because if you recognize who your tribe is, it makes it a lot easier to go looking for those people. And if you think that there's something wrong with you and you just have to learn how to be normal. That would be like if you were about a man, if you were about like 6'5 in height and your shoe size was 12 or 13 and you want to be normal, so what you would do is go buy a pair of shoes that are size 12 or 11. And then my response was, well, good luck with that. You wouldn't even be able to get your feet inside those shoes. 
right? And if you did, they would be incredibly painful. And that's on a physical level, but it's the same thing on an emotional level. That if you try to to constrict yourself, it all it does is cause pain. It doesn't do anything other than increase your loneliness and increase your pain. So, you know, part of healing is recognizing who you are and what you are and learning how to uh, live more gracefully with those characteristics. I'm a really lucky person because I have a good sense of humor and I don't mind being made fun of for being weird. And I, I say that not jokingly because I think that part of what happens when you're different, when you're highly sensitive, is that people are, have an easy time making fun of you because you are different and you are weird. And if you take it seriously, it's going to make you feel ashamed of yourself and bad. But, I, you know, I go through life thinking, yeah, of course I'm weird. I've always been weird. Well, you know, well, that's new. <laughs> that's not new. And I have a good sense of humor about it because I realize that anybody that's different than average is always going to be made fun of. It's just part of how we are as human beings. So uh, the more that you can accept that being different, yes, it's got its issues, but it's also, as an example, choose the right profession, it makes the profession way, way, way more likely to be successful. I've helped a fair number of highly sensitive people actually choose becoming a therapist as a vocation because they're born to be therapists. It's, it just comes naturally. It's like breathing. Now, not everybody's interested in psychology, obviously, but there are some people who, once they go through the experience of therapy, find it very fascinating. And so I usually try to encourage those people to consider it as a career. And it doesn't even matter what age you are. I mean, I'm helping a woman uh, become a therapist who's just a few years younger than me. And uh, she's more content professionally than ever in her entire life. And I just think it's wonderful that um, she had the courage to go back to school and now is in training and going to get licensed and um, help a lot of people, even though she's in her late 60s. And I, I, and I think that's because she finally was able to accept uh, how she's always been and that it, um, seeing it as an asset rather than a liability, it just changes everything about the way you live in the world. I've interviewed probably four different highly sensitive people prior to this podcast. I think it's been really fascinating to hear uh, the people that I've interviewed talk about their awareness of becoming or their awareness of who they are, understanding that they've always been really highly sensitive and why it's affected them the way that it has. And, um, and sometimes there's a lot of trauma that has accompanied that high sensitivity, depending on what kind of family that you come from. And um, resolving that trauma in some ways I think is easier the more sensitive you are because you have a direct connection to the depth of the feelings associated with the trauma that you've suffered. Not an easy thing to come to terms with sometimes because being a really deep feeler can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes, right? If you feel everything really, really strongly, it's not easy to go through life that way. But at the same time, I think if you try to make yourself something that you're not, that's not easy either. And in romantic relationships, I always encourage people that are really highly sensitive to be very, very careful in who they give their heart to. Because it's kind of an all-or-nothing proposition in a certain way. That if you let yourself become attached to someone as a highly sensitive person, it's a very deep attachment. And it happens really quickly. 
because that's just the way you're built. So if you're not careful about who you give yourself to, who you attach yourself to, uh, it can be a little bit dangerous, especially if in the past you've been manipulated into attaching to people with personality disorders because they're able to play upon your empathy for them and so on and so forth. It, it doesn't turn out well. So I ask people that are highly sensitive to go more slowly than they would otherwise in forming a relationship, to use your intuition, which is another part of who you are as a highly sensitive person that's heightened. I haven't spoken about that much, but the more sensitive you are, the more connected you are to your intuition on a really deep level. And your intuition is, you know, the guidepost in your life if you are willing to consider it such. And it gives you the opportunity to measure people on a really deep level relatively quickly so that you can decide whether it's safe to give your heart to that person. And I'm not just talking about romantically. I'm talking about as a friend also because um, the, the connection is going to be deeper than it would be in other in, in people that are not quite as sensitive. So you got to be careful who you give your heart to. Really, really important to be mindful of the fact that Generally speaking, you can be easily manipulated by someone who is able to read you in a way and understand how sensitive you are and take advantage of that. So you got to be really careful if you're a sensitive person not to um, let yourself be manipulated. Your intuition is the key to that safety because the more that you're willing to connect with your intuition, the less likely it is that somebody can take advantage of you. And that's pretty, pretty universal. Before I finish, I want to talk just briefly about how to live with a highly sensitive kid because it can be really difficult to have a a child that's really sensitive, really difficult, because the most common way that kids react to sensitivity if they don't really understand it is that they get angry quickly and easily, super frustrated. And so it can seem as though you know, there's something wrong with your kid, but it's really just because they're exquisitely reacting to the world around them. And if there's any discord uh, in your marriage, as an example, or any discord within yourself, that highly sensitive kid is going to be feeling every, every, every tiny bit of it. And it's going to scare them. And they're going to feel like they need to uh, do something to help you feel better. And lots of times kids like that, and I can be a, a, a prime example of what happens is that you start to look for negative attention, which is something I got really good at as a little kid. I was able to get in trouble really quickly and easily as a way of getting attention because I felt so um, scared and lonely a lot of the time because I didn't understand how sensitive I was. And, and I certainly could feel how much my parents were miserable, but I didn't really understand that it um, wasn't my job to fix them. So the way I got attention from them was by getting into trouble, which is really sad when I look back on it because um, it didn't help them and it didn't help me. So if you have a, a kid that's really sensitive and you can tell that that child is sensitive, you've got to be really careful about how you interact with that kid. Because if you take the approach of shaming that child, all it's going to do is make them hate themselves. It's not going to help them control their sensitivity. That's something I think it's important for parents to understand is that Shaming your kid is never okay, but shaming a highly sensitive kid is probably one of the worst things that you can do. So again, I hope that you as listeners to the Fear Me Out podcast have enjoyed this series on 
uh, HSP and being empathic. Uh, it's one of my favorite topics because uh, my life is pretty much centered around it, both personally and professionally. And uh, if anybody has any questions, don't ever hesitate to reach out to me because, uh, you know, over the course of time, I got a lot, a lot of experience with um, being a highly sensitive person. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.